Mack Weldon is better than whatever you're wearing right now. That is if you are wearing men's essentials of any kind. Uh, they do men's essentials, underwear, uh, undershirts, uh, socks, uh, sweatshirts. My husband has a bunch of the stuff from the Mack Weldon line. I can tell you that I borrow the stuff that's borrowable occasionally. I really, really like the sweatshirt, actually. It has a, a high zip neck, which is one of those things that uh, if you care about such things, they are hard to find. If you if you don't care about high the zip is on your sweatshirt, then then sweatshirts are easier for you. So I guess actually I would say that Mack Weldon sweatshirts are for picky people. They're for everybody, but picky people will be especially satisfied with Mack Weldon stuff. I also appreciate that they have a line of silver underwear and shirts that is antimicrobial. It's been a long time learning how to say that word. I hope you appreciate it. Uh, they want you to be comfortable. So if you don't like your first pair or your first anything, you can keep it and they will still refund your money. No questions asked. And not only does Mack Weldon's underwear, socks, and shirts look good, they perform well, too. Uh, the stuff that is wearable uh, on the outside, that is, is great for going to work, working out, whatever. Uh, date night, perhaps. So to try out Mack Weldon, go to MacWeldon.com and get 20% off using the promo code FRIENDS. Again, go to MacWeldon.com if you are interested in trying out these amazing premium essentials. And you can use the offer code FRIENDS to get 20% off. MacWeldon.com, offer code FRIENDS for 20% off. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, a show that is often about difficult conversations. Sometimes it's just about talking across difference. Today's a little of both. It's um, about one of the most difficultest conversations you can have. Uh, race. Fortunately for me, someone has written a book about it, like written an entire book about how to talk about race. This person is Iojima Aluo, and she is on the show today to kind of talk me and maybe you through some of the difficulties and discomfort that come with talking about race, including things like uh, how to pronounce a name that might be unfamiliar to you. We cover that. And I have Parker Malloy on to talk about how to find hope in the era of Trump. Both those things coming right up. Yojima Aluo is an editor at large for The Establishment, a media platform funded and run by women. And this is her first book. So you want to talk about race. It is out this month. Welcome to the show. I'm very, very aware of pronouncing your name correctly because I do, one of the things I know now, having read your book, is that inattention to names that might be different from what we're usually experiencing can be a kind of microaggression. Yes, it can. And I think oftentimes to the assumption that because you haven't heard a name, it's rare. Ijoma is kind of like the Sally or the Susan of Nigeria. I have like five Facebook friends named Ijoma. <laughs> and it's so funny because people will tell me, that's not a name you hear every day. And I'm like, well, technically, it is a name I hear every day, most definitely. <laughs> It is literally a name you hear every day. Multiple times a day. Multiple times. Usually, actually, you know, it's usually a bad sign if people are calling you by your name a lot because that, to me, indicates anger. Yes. But yeah. Um, well, I wanted to be sure to get it right. So we'll even keep on the part where I asked if I got it right. Because one of the things I love about your book, which is called So You Want to Talk About Race, is your emphasis on we're going to get things wrong. 
Yeah, I think it's really important that we get past this idea that we have to appear perfect all of the time. It doesn't mean that we don't have responsibility for getting things wrong and any harm it might cause. But I think we have to understand how common that is, that it's part of the human experience. And so uh, just sort of foregrounding one's inexperience and, for instance, talking about race can be a good thing. Um, But going ahead and doing it is the important part. Um, I want to actually talk to you about the origins of your book, too, because it is about so many different things. Um, but you tell the story, if I could ask you to, to kind of recount it here, about a conversation you had with your mom that is one of the sort of kernels that this book is wrapped around. Yeah, it was it was interesting, actually. I mean, at the time, I wouldn't say I found it very pleasant to talk with my mom, but I found myself realizing at 34 that while my mom and I had definitely talked about race in practicalities, my mom is a white mother of three black children. And, you know, she had had to say things like, "Okay, well, here's why some security guards might be following you. Here's how to act around cops. These are the unfortunate practicalities that parents of black children um, have to deal with. But, you know, in day to day, you're sitting around a dinner table. Race wasn't really something we talked about a lot. Um, You know, she loved that we were black. She loved our blackness and celebrated it. But talking about like racial politics and identity was something that just didn't happen. Dinner tables are kind of dinner tables. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize until I was about 34 and my mom called me to talk about this epiphany she had had around race that we were missing some very crucial discussions on Mm -hmm. race and racial identity. And it was kind of shocking to realize where after my mom, who's been an ardent supporter of my work for a very long time and who raised me, um, would have some of the very same kind of flawed ideas about race that many of the people that I write to and write about have. So it was really funny to, and in a weird, you know, mother-daughter way where my mom is also just being incredibly annoying, like many moms are, and, you know, filled with motherly enthusiasm. And when I'm like, oh, mom, oh my God, you're embarrassing me so much. But at the same time, realizing that we're having a really, really, really important talk about race. And that's where I realized that even with the people that love you and where you think everything's fine, it's really not something you can skip. Mm-hmm. And I, 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 I maybe will have to give a little bit of a spoiler alert because I would love it if you wouldn't mind sharing kind of the, the nut of what her epiphany was and how you responded to it, because I I think it's just such an interesting insight into why we need to have these conversations and what they do. Yeah. So she had, she left me a voicemail saying she had had an epiphany and she wanted me to call her back. And I really didn't want to do that, but she <laughs> just kept calling me back. She does that thing where, you know, moms call and call and call until you answer the phone. And she was explaining to me that she was telling a joke at work. My mom lives in the Seattle area with me in a predominantly white area. Um, there's only one black person at the time in their entire team. And so my mom's telling a joke and she says it had a quote unquote black punchline. Now, it doesn't mean the punchline mm. was necessarily black people. It meant like it was a joke, like an in-house black joke. And my mom is a white lady from Kansas. Mm-hmm. And so the one black guy on the team turned to her and said, you know, something like, what would you know about that? (laughs) And my mom felt challenged and felt angry. And so she's telling me how mad she was and was like, he's probably thinking this white bitch. And like, just like my mom's just, you know, totally illustrating this entire thing. And I'm just like, oh my God, what are you even saying, mom? 
And she's like, but then I realized, you know, if I were black, I would probably be angry all the time, too. And I'm like, what are you even saying? <laughs> and then she concludes that, you know, that because this, this was her great epiphany. Her great epiphany was that, mm-hmm. well, of course, you know, he wouldn't know who to trust because of racism. So, of course, he's angry all the time. Everyone, you know, black would be angry all the time. And that's her great epiphany. And so then her solution was that she was going to go to work the next day and explain to him that she's not racist because she has black kids. And I was like, what are you doing? Because I spent a lot of time, you know, being very open about the fact that you don't use the black people in your life as a ticket, you know, to avoid investigating maybe your transgressions when it comes to race. And so I'm and also I'm just thinking, you know, my mom has to work here and she's, you know, going to end up in HR. <laughs> <And> so, <laughs> I'm like, what are you doing? And so we had to have this talk. And what I realized was my mom thought she had a pass. Like she thought she had been right. invited to the cookout because she had raised us. She she really thought she was honorary black and hadn't quite realized that, no, even though she had raised us and loved us and raised us well. Not a single day of her life had been spent as a Black person. And that was kind of painful for her. And I think it was a realization that was sitting in her subconscious that she didn't want to address, that there was a part of her children's life that she couldn't touch. And having me kind of state it straight out, no. And she was like, well, do I get credit for all the years I did your hair? (laughs) And I'm like, that's not how this works. And then, you know, she was asking me why I didn't identify as white. And I had explained how, you know, blackness and whiteness work in society. And it's not really a percentage system when you look at systems of race. And you're not half as much discriminated against if you're exactly. half white. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. And while I do get some privilege from having lighter skin, whiteness is definitely a classification of exclusion. You're white or you're not. And, mm-hmm. you know, everything else is kind of where you are in that ladder of oppression. And so I was explaining this to her and kind of explaining where her role was. And she was really, you know, asking, well, where do I fit in your life then? I raised you. I gave birth to you. But I don't have a part of this. So where do I fit? And it was a really important discussion because I had noticed, you know, as my work grew, like my mom became quieter and it was harder for Mm -hmm. her to adjust to what my blackness actually looked like. And it looked different than what I think she had thought it would be. You know, we raise our kids and we wonder, who are you going to be? But when your kid is a different race from you and you actually don't get a lot of their life experience, who they turn out to be oftentimes ends up different than you could have ever imagined. And while I think my mom always knew I was going to be a strong person and I was going to, you know, make something of my life, I don't think that she thought my blackness would look like it did. And I don't think she thought it would be something she wouldn't always get. And it was interesting because then she was able to find her place and find, yeah, she does still belong as my mom, as my friend, as a community member, and as someone who cares deeply about ending racism, she has a place as a white woman in this struggle. And giving her that, giving her that place where she could make the most difference, I think really energized her. And so now she's gung-ho, like, in her space. She's no longer trying to take up the time of Black people who are fighting racism by proving that she's one of us and, you know, trying to show that she's better because we are all her buddies. And instead, focusing on the white people in her community and getting them to help her do the real work of examining their privilege and dismantling systems 
systems of oppression. So it's been a really interesting and lovely transformation. And it's definitely something, you know, I wish we could have had sooner, but we didn't. And some people never have at all. And it's never too late. And I think if you can get your quirky 63-year-old mother to have this conversation with you and see real change and progress, then I think anyone really can. And I love that story because I I feel like it really illustrates the spirit of this book, uh, which is an incredibly loving book in many ways. Uh, I think that the care you take in the way that you're talking to what is, I mean, I read it as a white person, right? And you do sometimes explicitly address it to white people. And I feel like we are getting to experience, if you read this book with an open mind, a little bit of that same turn that your mom was able to take. Uh, which is that I thought I was doing stuff right. I thought I w- was going to get my white person marriage badge, you know. Uh, but you're making. But I now have to look at some things about myself that may not be comfortable. But you're going to sort of let me know where the opportunities are in that discomfort, right? Yeah, and I think it's important to remember. A lot of times, people look at our fear and our anger, and those things are all valid. Right. Black people and people of color in this country have been harmed, harmed for hundreds of years. So we do have a lot of fear and a lot of anger and a lot of resentment. But there is hope in the fact that we are still willing to have these discussions. These discussions take more out of people of color than they do anyone else in the conversation. And there is always a positivity to be found in that discussion at all. Even if that discussion is filled with anger, there is still a love and a sense of potential. It's when that conversation stops, when people say it is absolutely not happening, there is nothing to be done, that you should really start being concerned about anger and fear and resentment. Because the fact that we have these discussions at all, you know, it's interesting, a lot of people complain about like, Tanahasi Coates, and they say that his work is too pessimistic because he doesn't offer solutions to everyone, right? Hmm. He's doing real important work in identifying problems. And I keep saying, you know, he's a Black man in America who's experiencing this all firsthand and then dedicating his life to diving in deeper and finding the root causes and writing about it giving that to the world, if that's not optimistic, I don't know what else is. To go through all of that and still think, I can do something to make a difference, that's the epitome of of optimism. And I think that we forget that there is real tough, hard work to be done. And the fact that there are still people of color who want to do that work with white people who have been exempt from a lot of it for most of their lives is immense optimism because it always takes more out of us. I have a saying in, for my life uh, that hope is a muscle and hope is an action uh, that you don't, you exercise it and you do it. You don't express it necessarily. And to me, like what you and what ta Coates are doing is hopeful by definition because it is this action that is only taken because of the sense of possibility. Right? So... So I, I want to get to the actual book, too, which it does contain some some autobiographical uh, anecdotes, which are usually uh, either heartbreaking <laughs> or funny, sometimes both. Um, you're a storyteller for sure. But what is amazing about this book is it is literally a, a guidebook 
for people that want to talk about race. Uh, I did have an idea that there were some other alternate titles for it. One would be, so we have to talk about racism is one alternate title. And then another one would be how to talk to your in-laws on Facebook. Because <laughs> like you basically, you do take on arguing on the internet. And, and this book is definitely for anyone that's ever found themselves in a Facebook or Twitter canoe with someone um, arguing about race. And you, you have some very like concrete tips. So let's just go through some of the tips that you have for, again, I feel like you're addressing white people here, but I, and I, I don't want to think that's just because I'm white. Um, they're tips for anyone. They might be especially useful to a white person. Uh, one of them is remember what your top priority in the conversation is and don't let your emotions override that. Yeah, I think it's really important to not only remember what your top priority is, but I would say to state it. A lot of times what happens is you get in these discussions and you have a goal for the conversation. The person you're talking to has a different goal from the conversation, but because neither of you stated it, you're actually having two separate discussions and it's going to go nowhere. And then the more angry you get, the, the further away you get from your goal. But it's really important to remember why you're entering these conversations and to pull yourself back to it. If you're entering into these discussions because you want a greater understanding about what, you know, a person of color is feeling about race, or you want to find opportunities to move forward and find resolution on issues about race, or you want a white person to understand why this issue about race is important to you. It's really important to state that and to hold yourself to it, to try to come back to it, because the moment things get a little heated, it can then become about whether or not someone's going to take back the fact that they called you racist or whether or not mm -hmm. someone's going to be sorry for making you feel bad, whether or not you're going to win the most points in this debate. And it's really, really important to pull yourself back to why you got in there. And of course, that does require that first you investigate yourself why you're having this conversation. Mm -hmm. And then some of them I feel are, are somewhat obvious, but then again, it's amazing what people forget when they're arguing on the internet. Um, things like do your research. Uh, and you point out that people often come to a person of color for answers to questions that, you know, you can Google. Like, they're not like mysteries. Yeah, and it's really frustrating too. And sometimes it just, I marvel at how hard it can be for people to understand. I think part of, partially this is the internet's doing. The internet is kind of this instant gratification place. We, we are so used to getting the information and the feedback that we want immediately that oftentimes we forget that unless we're actually doing the work ourselves, there are other people whose efforts are behind that information we're getting. And so I get questions all day, the same questions over and over and over and over, even though, you know, if a quick look at my page says, you know, I have 120,000 followers and a lot of people asking me questions and someone will ask me something very specific, you know, and very easily Googled. And then someone will say, hey, did you know you could Google that? And the response mm -hmm. will be, but I like the personal touch, as if I'm a concierge. <laughs> <laughs> or they're treating you like, a, well, I was going to be a more unkind metaphor is like a jukebox. Yeah. You know, like I, I'm going to I'm going to give you a token and you're going to tell me the thing that I need to hear. 
Exactly. But, and I, I really do, you know, I, I want to say like, you know, if you're an accountant, does this mean that everyone on the internet who has a question about taxes has the right to automatically demand every, you know, an answer to every question they ever had about taxes? And furthermore, let's pretend that, you know, taxes have hurt you your whole life. And you, <laughs> then, you know, do you have to constantly offer up your you know, experience with taxes all the time. People seem to forget that. Like, not only is this my job, you know, and something I, I normally get paid to do and I'm busy working on, but it's also incredibly painful work that's grounded in real lived painful experience. And so the constantly be treated as this, you know, living dictionary um, that you can just pop a question in and get an answer out without even checking if maybe you're the first person who have who's asked that question that day. Um, can feel really demeaning. And I think it's really important to remember that, especially in a society, we are, the term minority means we are minorities in the population. So if you are five people's only Black friend, <laughs> that can get tiring really quick. Yeah, I think one of the one of the overarching points made in the book is about, even if you consider yourself an ally, you need to think about the, the people of color in your lives as people and ha- who have an experience that is painful, that you cannot think of them as just a resource for yourself. Like they're not there to help educate you. And that, in fact, I would say uh, one of the tips you have or one of the things to remember is do not force people of color into discussions of race. Yes. And I think that that's something I find quite often. I'm very strict about my own personal boundaries, both online and in person when it comes to discussions on topics like this, because I know what my bandwidth is as a human being and what I need to be able to continue my work. But even before, when I was just working in tech, you know, working in an office, I had to have boundaries because anytime something would come up on race, even from elementary school on, everyone would turn and look to me. I was always the only black person in the room. And it's not a new experience for most people of color in this country. And what you're really doing is asking for a lot of painful labor. And you have to consider people as people. And so often people of color are painted in our media and our culture and in our history as your helpers, your assistants. They're your path. Even if you have the best of intentions, you're on this great liberal journey of racial understanding. There's always this person of color that's supposed to serve as your sage to walk you Mm -hmm. through your journey. And it's about you becoming better and you becoming wiser and you coming out of this you know, fully in bloom as this paragon of virtue without any thought as to what you are extracting and the humanity of the person that's going with you. Why are they going with you? Are you doing them a favor by ending your participation in a system that only you benefit from? You know, why, why, would, why are they here for you? Why are they your foot servants of, you know, wokeness? It's not what people of color are for. We are human beings who have kids and jobs and plans, you know, and we want to laugh and we want to think about something else every once in a while. And, you know, we want to go to work and have it be about work. We want to go through our lives. And it's oftentimes the failure of white people around us to see us as full human beings with our own lived experiences and our own battles that we're fighting that prevent us from being able to do so. A fresh new year has begun, and if you are setting goals for your business, it's extremely difficult to reach them without the right people on your team. And ZipRecruiter has transformed how you go about finding them. 
it is hard to find great talent. There's just so many people out there and the needs that you have might be specific. They might be general. Sometimes uh, the more willing you are to be open to different kinds of applicants, the harder it is to find them. But ZipRecruiter can help. Uh, They can help you narrow down the number of people who respond to your ad. They can narrow down the number of people you might be interested in. They post your job to over 100 of the web's leading job boards with just one click. But then they actively look for the most qualified candidates and invite them to apply. There is a level of screening that they do for you. And that's how ZipRecruiter is different. Unlike other hiring sites, ZipRecruiter doesn't depend on the right candidate finding you. It finds them. They even review every application to identify the very top ones. They will make sure that you never miss a great match. So it's no wonder that 80% of employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate through the site in just one day. ZipRecruiter is the smartest way to hire. Find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by businesses of all sizes and industries to find the most qualified job candidates with immediate results. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free. And that is right, for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. You can try ZipRecruiter for free. Go to ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. That's one more time. ZipRecruiter.com slash friends. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut. I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiance of Stefan Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. Another overarching point in the book, of course, is how much white people need to be having discussions with white people. Uh, that this work of racial justice isn't just about like using, you know, your, I, I love that phrase you just used, like your foot servant of wokeness, you know, like this is not just about a personal journey to, to collect the most black friends or other people of color friends. Um, and to prove that you are woke. In fact, you make a reference at one point, actually, to the danger of people becoming addicted to the satisfaction that they are saying and doing the right thing. Yes. Which I think I'm going to make a, just a little bit of a leap here, but I think people who listen to the show are familiar with what that feels like. I don't want to cast aspersions, but I'm going to say I'll own it. I'll own it. I, I, I get very comfortable 
with being uh, satisfied that I'm doing the right thing. I can feel very proud of myself about that. Certainly. And that's, yeah. That's, it's a really easy trap to fall into, especially because those initial steps were kind of hard. Right. Mm-hmm. So you feel like you've earned it. You've done this work. And then you see people around you who aren't doing anything. And you're like, oh, oh, man, you know, I'm great. I'm doing really well. <laughs> and you want to like flaunt that and you want to keep showing how good you are at it. But what we have to realize, first off, that's really annoying. It's really, (laughs) really annoying to people of color who are just trying to get through their day and don't want to have to pat you on the back with how great you're doing. Um, Second, there are parts of you that you still don't know are screwed up on this. Mm -hmm. There are parts of you that you don't know are contributing to a problem. And it is a never ending process because our culture is so over overarchingly racist. It is in deep, deep, deep inside everyone who grows up into this culture, anti-blackness, you know, colorism, you know, all of this xenophobia. It is deep in our bones. You know, instead of saying I'm going to constantly show what I'd like, you know, what I would love for people to do is to constantly be proud. If you're going to show anything, if you're going to show off anywhere, show off your ability to find the deepest, darkest parts of yourself and to show other white people you can survive that and you grow and learn from it. That's what I would love. If you're going to go ahead and brag, brag about that, brag about like, hey, other white people, don't brag to me. I was there. I know when you weren't getting it (laughs) because I felt it. (laughs) So I'm not the person you need to talk to. You need to talk to people who aren't doing that journey and say, look, oh, look what I just discovered. This awful thing I did. Man, that hurt so bad to realize it. Now this is what I'm doing. And and make that the thing you're aspiring to. Not never being wrong. (laughs) You know, not being better than someone else. Be better than who you were yesterday. And you have some specific tips uh, Again, I again, I'm reading this from where who I am. So I'm reading it as, as advice that I can use. And and what I saw, it was a really helpful tip about when you are calling someone else out for doing something that's ist, that's bigoted in some way, to always talk about the effect of that action, not to just like name it as a, a thing that was racist or sexist or whatever. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah. And I, I would say this is definitely something that I, I put... I would say for white people is a definite must when they're talking about race and calling out. And for people of color, this is really going to be up to their bandwidth, right? Yeah. Sometimes, someday something happens and all you can muster because it's just hit you so hard is, oh, that was racist. Mm-hmm. And then you got to go home. And you yeah, gotta that's why I wanted to make a distinction because I, yes. yes. Um, you know, um, but what I would say is I think it's important in two ways. One, because a lot of a lot of times if someone is doing something inadvertently saying it is what they don't think it is isn't going to go anywhere they if they thought it was that it's not like you're just naming it and they go oh my god i had no idea and they're suddenly <laughs> going to make the connections if they could make that connection right away they would have made it and yeah. then they would have kept their mouths shut yeah, calling trump racist he's not going to somehow that hasn't had an effect on his behavior oh yeah it's he weird. keeps saying i'm the least racist person it's, it's very strange that 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 calling him a racist has had no effect whatsoever I know, on who what? on who he is um a more effective thing to do we don't we most of us will probably not get the chance to talk to Trump himself about his behavior, but someone in my family uh, was, we were talking about Colin Kaepernick and he asserted, uh, well, you know, those people just don't want to work. How should I handle that? Yeah. I, well, first off, I would say, can you please elaborate what you mean by those people? 
Right. A lot uh, yeah. of times I think it's really important. People kind of try to slide by and what they assume is a shared idea about people of color. And they don't want to say it. They don't want to say the full thing. They're just hoping that you you think the same about black people and then you'll nod. Because they would have just said, you know, black people are lazy. <laughs> like you don't want to work if they wanted that to be out. You know, they wanted it to be known that that's what they think. They're hoping you'll agree. You can wink and nod. Um, So a lot of times I like to do that feigned ignorance. What do you mean by that? Those people. Hmm. And then get a specific. And usually then it turns into a waffling. Oh, well, you know, I mean, these people like maybe in inner cities. I'm like, oh, well, who predominantly lives in inner cities? Are you talking about the black people in inner cities? Why do you think? Do you think that they're born not wanting to work? Do you think there's something wrong with Black people as a whole? Do you think maybe they're defective? Is that what you're saying? And really get to the root of what they're saying, because so often, especially when we look at people who like to say that, you know, who like to try to tie the state of people of color in this country to their own will, you know, or their own efforts, what they're actually saying is, is that there's something fundamentally wrong with that group of people, but that's not what they want to come out and say. So a lot of times I like to say that. Okay, so right now, you know, we live in a world where, you know, black households have 13 times less net worth than white households. Are you saying that black people are 13 times more lazy than white people? Because that's the only explanation that makes sense other than there's a problem with the system and really get to the core of what's being insinuated there. You know, force people to really look at and investigate these statements they're making because can I I'm going to interrupt really quick because what I want to point say is that so so far this is actually playing out sort of like it happened. Like I said, what do you mean by that? (laughs) And he said, you know what I mean? And I said, I think you're talking about black people. And he was like, well, and then it sort of went off into this area of like where he's like, you know, if they really wanted jobs, and I said, this is actually, I said, I have to leave the room now. So I chickened out a little bit. I said, I can't be here for this. Now, what I'd wish I'd done was the thing that you, that I think you're about to talk about, but I wanted to just call attention to, to this, which is that I didn't talk to him about why that was a bad thing to say. Does that make That's... I don't know why this is such an it such hit me so hard when I was reading you reading this as a as a tip, which is that the thing to do is be like, and you saying that does X, Y, Z. Right. Yeah, it's important systemically to realize, you know, and that's part of the t- part of the reason why I put a lot of different facts in the book as well mm-hmm. is because the words we use are not just words. How we think of people of color. How we think of Black people in America, it's not just words. That impacts whether or not we're willing to interview or hire them. And that's where, you know, I really do feel that white people, when I say do your research, part of the reason why you need to do your research is because you need to know why before Mm -hmm. you can have these conversations. Why? You need to know the system that's being played into with these comments. So when someone says, oh, they're just lazy or they don't want to work, you actually need to know why so many young Black men are out of work in order to be able to counter that. 
And then because what they're doing is playing into that. And you have to be able to tell them what they're playing into, not just necessarily you're going to hurt black people's feelings by saying that they don't want to work, you know, Um, but saying, you know, we live in a country where if you have a black sounding name, you're four times less likely to even be called for an interview. So who's saying black people don't want to work? Maybe consistently saying that they're not the type of people that want to work is what stops them from being called. You know, it, yeah, that's the thing I wish I had said. That's exactly it. Because I, I can tell, I mean, because I, we could have talked about the facts of like poverty and and whether or not that the statistics, you, do you really believe black people are 13 times more lazy? Like that seems like that's the part of the conversation that seems known. The part of the conversation that I think could have a really big impact on an on the person who says those things or when you when you can point out the thing you said point a has a direct impact on this is part of the system you are participating in the system when you say that yes and i think but first you have to be able to point out the system right right and i think oftentimes that's a missing part so a you have to get to the core of what they're saying right b you have to know yourself what it is they're participating in and that's part of the reason why i ask people to practice it's twofold it's not necessarily only so that the person you're talking to is coming out with a better understanding of the system but also so that you get used to looking at it as a system this is something that takes practice it's really easy to slip back into oh, I'm mad at this one individual because they did a bad thing. Fire them or make them feel shame. And, you know, I want this relative of mine to just say he's sorry and that will be victory. That's not (laughs) actually what victory looks like because he's still going to participate with the system of race the same way. And so instead, looking at the system that people are are participating in, educating them and educating yourself is going to give you more opportunities to make that change. I think that this is just... I'm. Thank you for helping me workshop this <laughs> response. <laughs> but if I can break it down for myself and hopefully for maybe for some readers, so that there is this, so it's a sort of three part way of dealing with some in a situation like this. And believe it or not, I get, we get lots of mail about this problem. Like, so it's just extraordinarily helpful to be able to talk really explicitly about it. Um, there's, you, you get the person to clarify what they mean, right? Mm-hmm. Did I hear you right? What did you mean by that? make them state the thing that they wanted you to be complicit in. And then part B, show them how that uh, thing that they said is, is, part of, is, is part of a system, like, or is an example of white supremacy working, like the, the part where, we talk, where you talked about um, black people having 13 times, or white people have 13 times more, uh, what kind of, was it personal wealth or, or was it? Household I, wealth, yeah. Household wealth. Um, And then step C is the one that I think is the one that gets left out the most, which is that and then you saying that you are feeding into a system where black people do not get black people where people with black sounding names don't get calls back to get work. Yeah. And, you know, feeding into a system where, uh, you know, black people are more likely to be viewed as lazy in school and to be accused of cheating, you know, and all of these things where it's this idea that they don't want to do the work. Mm -hmm. You know, imagine coming into your life every day from kindergarten on with the expectation that you don't want to do the work. 
And that's what's being fed into. That's what those comments feed into. And it's something that feeds how we decide which students get extra help when they fall behind. You know, who gets loans? Who gets job interviews? Who gets promotions? If someone's late for work, it's who gets suspended versus who doesn't, right? These are all the things day in and day out that actually lead to measurable in, you know, outcomes in the lives for people of color. I think this is a, just a real helpful template. <laughs> and people should read the book to find out more. There's, there's, uh, you do it in the form of a lot of questions. It's almost like a frequently asked questions uh, book about race. And there's everything from, you know, how can I talk to about affirmative action? Is police brutality about race? I, I could just read the uh, index or the table of contents and, and people will get an idea. There's a lot to work with in your everyday life with this. But I want to ask you about something that I, I didn't see you talk about explicitly for yourself, except you mentioned it just now, which is your personal boundaries and your bandwidth. How do you take care of yourself? This must be just incredibly difficult to do on a, I mean, you talked about it. This is something to engage in this work is painful. And you've chosen to do so and and you've done some amazing, you know, service here. How do you cultivate resilience for yourself? Um, you know, I would say that's the one area I really haven't gotten down for myself. Um, I'm still a very ardent supporter in helping other people build space and time and cultivate resilience. But I, I definitely would say I don't have it down um, <laughs> at all. <laughs> I'm kind of, you know, I think it's important to remember, you know, um, Black people, due to necessity, are oftentimes used to running on empty all the time. Um, it's a normal state for me whether I'm doing this work or not. Now, emotionally now, this work is much, much harder. But my entire life, work has always been much harder. And I don't know how to really balance. And there are times where I definitely push too hard and people are definitely like, hey, uh, you need to push, you know, you're, you're, you need to simmer down. Um, but there's always a sense of urgency, right? I, I do get this sense of panic if I think I'm going to take a week off because immediately I'm like, what if something happens and I need to be writing about this? You know, what if I need to be talking about this? You know, or I get an email from someone with a question that seems really urgent. Um, I'm, I'm working on it. I, I definitely have discovered, I'd say probably this last year, that it's something I need to get better at. The things that are saving me right now are, A, the fact that I am a single mom. And I know for a lot of people that sounds like, oh my gosh, that's adding so much. And it does add a ton of work to my life, but it adds that everyday mundanity. It adds that home. You know, there's a lot of safety in knowing that you have to get your kid to their sports event at 3.30, no matter what's happening in the world. You know, even if I've been, you know, called every racial slur in the book all day long and, you know, I've had to write about hor- horrors that are happening to Black people around the country, I still have to turn my computer off at 3 o'clock and drive my son down to the bowling alley because he's on his, t- you know, high school bowling league. You know, and I still have to pause for a minute while my 10-year-old tells me about the project he's working on in school. Um, and that bit right there, that that need in order to be a good parent, to stop and just be contained and boring 
um, is definitely helping me through. I don't know if I would be able to do this work without that. I think I would probably just try to work 24 hours a day and then die. And (laughs) racism kills Americans. It kills Black Americans. Um, And I think that the joy I get from my kids the mundanity of day-to-day life of, you know, we still eat at home. I'm definitely a homebody, um, you know, sitting at the dinner table with them, ask, you know, having to pretend to be incredibly interested in, you know, whatever um, comic book my 10-year-old just read <laughs> that I didn't read, but, you know, he's going to spend 20 minutes telling me about it in great detail, just like every other parent does. That's really honestly what saves me. And it and it also is a good reminder for, which is the continuation for my little kids of color to be able to have mundanity in their life, to have a little break from mm-hmm. the danger uh and you know, fraught day-to-day life of living as a person of color in this country. And I'm finding to preserve that not only for myself, but for black people around the country. So it's kind of my little recharge as busy as it is. Um, to know that, you know, half of the things I have to do in the day are just typical mom things. I I think that's uh, rather wonderful. Uh, I I get it, too. I'm, I'm not a mom. Um, but I think that there's a lot to be said for being able to be grateful for mundanity. The mundane uh, is a privilege to have a mundane life in some ways. Yes, um, it is. And I wish a lot of people understood that, you know, part of my work, what I do, that's part of the reason why I, I'm so firmly against the exceptionalism of people of color mm-hmm. is because what I want is safety and security for every person of color. I want it to be okay to just be an everyday person of color and have that mean that you still have the opportunity to feed and clothe your kids and to walk down the street safely and to interact with your police with confidence and security. I don't want it to be that it's only the geniuses, you know, only the most committed, only the most worthy that get to survive. I want everyday people of color to flourish in this society. And I think that's a wonderful place to end. Um, A great, a great idea uh, and a great hope. Do you have anything else you want to add before we go? I definitely want to stress that this is not a book that's only for white people. Oh, yes. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I kept on trying to emphasize that, that I was reading it that way because I'm white. Yes. But that there's a lot in here. I mean, and also I didn't want to claim. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't want to be like, oh, yeah, and tons for people of color. Yeah, totally. I can. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah. And, well, and it's, it's definitely not something I'm saying just because of this interview. This is something okay. that comes up in pretty much every interview I have in the book um, oh, yeah, yeah. where I think people find where they where they find use. I think a lot of people think mm-hmm. it's more actionable for white people, and that may well be the case. But I will say that for many people of color, and I do write at its core always for people of color, even when I'm not addressing people of color. Mm -hmm. Um, Something also that I think a lot of people of color are going to find words for things they may not have words for in the past. And if anything, we'll find some solidarity and we'll feel seen in their reflections of their lives in a lot of these stories and in a lot of these situations that are being, you know, given print. And so I, I hope that people understand that too, that, you know, while it is important to see what you have to learn and take from it, no, also, it wasn't actually made for you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think I, if if you don't, I, I don't mind my trying to have this 
trying to see it this way, but it's I also feel like a person of color reading this book and seeing what you say to white people can can have an idea about what they're perfectly justifiably uh, okay to demand from white people. Yes. And I think, you know, we are all products of the same society that says it's not okay to talk about these things and says that the experience of white Americans is the default. That's the right experience in society. And so if you're experiencing something different, you have no right to complain or to question. And so part of what I want to give as someone who has been fortunate enough and unfortunate enough to have the day-to-day job of complaining and questioning is the freedom to say absolutely not. What you're feeling in your gut, that punch you feel when someone says something to you, that's real and it's valid. And you actually do have the right to challenge it. Here's some examples of how I have done so. And not necessarily to say this is how you should do it, but necess- but also to say, if you've ever felt, oh, really, is it a problem? Am I really just complaining too much? To know that that's absolutely not true. And to kind of try and give more validation to what millions of Americans are facing every single day. And now we'll call that the end. (laughs) At the beginning of the year, we all make a lot of uh, resolutions about bettering ourselves. I'm always dedicated to drinking more water and uh, usually exercising. But also, especially as I get older, I have to be a little more intentional about learning something new every year. Not just going along, being happy with everything I already know, which is, you know, at my age, I I know a fair amount. Um, But that is why I like The Great Courses Plus. It is a wonderful way to discover interesting information about people, places, and ideas. Virtually any category, you can make yourself as challenged as you want to be. You can research hobbies like painting or cooking, or you can do the kind of stuff that I'm more interested in, a little more esoteric, but actually very applicable to today's news, I've been uh, studying the history of the Supreme Court, one of the most relevant institutions to politics today, obviously one of the three branches of government. Uh, I'm not sure if our president could pass that pop quiz, but you listeners probably can. And so you understand how important the Supreme Court is. But do you know the history of the Supreme Court? Do you know that it was not always really a co-equal branch of government, although technically it was, but it didn't start to assert its power until a few years into its existence? And do you know the history of the court um, finding different kinds of rights in the Constitution? This is a debate we have between liberals and conservatives uh, unto today, which is how uh, how much of a living document is the Constitution? I think you'll be surprised to know um, that that particular debate doesn't go back that far. People, I think, uh, mostly understood the Constitution to be something that you could find uh, rights in up until, you know, gosh darn federalist society. Anyway. Supreme Court history of Great Courses Plus. That's what I'm doing. But you can study anything you want and you can watch on your TV, laptop, tablet or smartphone. Or if you like podcasts, you can kind of use the Great Courses Plus as a podcast app. So start the year off right by signing up for the Great Courses Plus. As one of my listeners, you will get a free trial to enjoy it all. That's the fun stuff and the more esoteric stuff. They do have like philosophy and whatnot. Uh, But you need to go to my special URL. It's a little complicated, but I think you can handle it. It is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash friends. That is thegreatcoursesplus.com slash friends. So there's a the in there and there's a plus in there. And then there's a dot com and a slash and a friends. Check it out. Add stamps.com to your business and save a ton of time and money this year. 
Stamps.com brings all the amazing services of the U.S. Postal Service right to your computer. I don't know about you guys, but I became an LLC this year. I became a pass-through corporation because that's apparently how you have lower taxes in this world and corporations are people too. Uh, So that means that I can write off a lot of stuff uh, if I do it for my business. And so I am a business and I use stamps.com and it is so great to be able to do it from home and to be able to uh, have every single thing that you might go to the post office for available right there at my desktop. I can print official U.S. postage for any letter or package and any class of mail, and the mailman will pick it up. There's no arranging someone to come by like there is with other services. No leaving the office, no lugging mail to the post office, and no more hassle. Saves you time and money. And they make it easy. They will send you a digital scale that automatically calculates the postage, and you never have to overpay or underpay or guess about postage again. You can create your Stamps.com account in minutes with no equipment to lease and no long-term commitment. Like I said, I use Stamps.com because I am officially a corporation. Uh, I encourage everyone who has that capacity uh, to become one as well. Apparently, that's the only way you survive in the new Thunderdome world. And use Stamps.com. And right now, you can enjoy Stamps.com service with a special offer that includes a four-week trial plus postage and that digital scale. Are you ready for a happier new year? Go to stamps.com, click on the microphone at the top of the page and type in friends. That's stamps.com and use the offer code friends on that little microphone at the top. On the show, we like to respond to questions from listeners. And just so you know, I read almost every piece of email we get. And the way that we select questions to respond to on the show, often it's because a question is representative of a bunch of questions. And we get a lot of variations on the question coming up. It's about hope. I was wondering if you could offer me any sort of advice on finding hope for the future of the United States. Every day is just a constant kick to the teeth when it comes to thinking things will turn around. It just seems more and more like Trump has done at least something impeachable. And there's a portion of the country that is actively fighting to dismantle our democracy. It's just really hard to deal with every day. Here to help me answer that question is Parker Malloy. She is a senior writer for Upworthy and all-around awesome person. Please follow her on Twitter. Uh, Parker, hey. Hey, how's it going? You know, it's cold, but it's okay. But how's it going is almost the, the question we're answering today. Yeah, yes. How does one answer the question? So, so okay, so I was, I was uh, so thinking about that. So thinking about the, and in terms of, optimism and impeachment and the path forward, like all of that stuff. Uh, here's kind of what I've been convincing myself of uh, in order to keep my my own brain from exploding. Uh, so basically, so if you look at it like this, we're, we're basically a year into the Trump administration. Uh, one positive thing here is that he and the Republican Party have had a really tough time actually selling his policies to the public. Um, you know, in September, a poll showed that something like 81% of voters said they disapproved of how Republicans were handling health care. In December, right before the tax bill passed, a CNN poll found that two-thirds of Americans thought it unfairly favored the wealthy. So at least the messaging is getting across. And I think that that's important. So even if they get this, you know, even if they get these pieces of legislation through, it's important to remember that the messaging, um, you know, about the truth of these bills is actually making an impact. So, you know, that's good to keep in mind. It's good to 
to understand that that you know the listener is not alone in thinking that uh you know in in how they feel about things so that's good right and and also if i can just interject we are in the majority <laughs> in fact like yeah. both literally right always good to remember because it 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 hurts trump so much in both kind of metaphorically and, and apparently almost physically uh, he lost the popular vote. He lost the popular vote. He lost the popular vote. Um, and most Americans are are tr- are critical of this presidency. So not alone. Huge, huge thing to remember. Yeah. Not alone. Totally. And I mean, and also, you know, his approval rating is currently hovering in the high 30s. Uh, you know, when it comes to like the generic ballot, Democrats have about a 10 point advantage right now. And that's pretty big. Mm-hmm. And also going into going into the 2018 elections, uh, you know, there are only seven House Democrats who are either outright retiring or have already resigned ahead of the election compared with 21 Republicans. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, that's it's it's kind of an interesting balance watching how that's playing out. But, you know, beyond that, uh, one thing that's important to note is that women are really like amped up to get involved in politics, which is really cool. Like in November, Axios reported that something like 15,000 women have contacted She Should Run and 19,000 reached out to Emily's list. Mm. Like that's, that is big. It's good to see that people are are engaged and that they want to be a part of the process. Mm -hmm. And additionally, another thing to feel optimistic about is Ruth Bader Ginsburg, who will live forever, has hired (laughs) clerks through 2020. So, you know. Long may she reign. Yes. that's, That's a bit of good news. Yep. Yep. Yeah, exactly. And also, uh, you know, one of the longer term term things that people are always thinking about is, uh, you know, climate change. But, you know, and Trump Trump's had this big push to coal, uh, which obviously most most people who are who care about the uh, about the environment probably are super thrilled with. But clean energy is cheaper than ever. And it's getting cheaper as time goes on. You know, renewables like wind and solar are becoming increasingly affordable and according to the United Nations, uh, they make up half of all new electricity capacity, um, you know, worldwide. So, that, I mean, that's that's big in itself. But, I mean, I really truly get how easy it is to just let despair kind of wash over you. And I'd be lying if I said that there weren't reasons to feel legitimately worried about the direction of the country and what kind of long-term effect the Trump era will kind of have on us all. But, uh, pessimism isn't a great motivator as much as it's <laughs> it's easy to give into. <laughs> you know, the truth is that a lot of a lot of the issues being, you know, and here's here's another way to, to think about things. A lot of the issues being created by the Trump administration and his enablers in Congress can kind of they can be stopped or at least slowed down if uh, we all just go out and vote in November. You know, if Democrats take back control of the House or the Senate, it puts a stop to his. Uh, legislative agenda, leaving him the option of either seeking out actual compromises between parties, meaning no more bills written behind closed doors by the GOP, or to not get anything done, which, you know, might not be the worst thing in the world. Um, but, you know, if if Democrats take the Senate, I think it's even better as they're then they'd be able to uh, vote down his court picks that right. he's trying to push through right. as fast as possible. So, you know, like that's that's important to remember that there, that we have a lot of power you know, in our hands as voters coming into the 2018 election. Um, you know, when it comes to, you know, the, the the question mentioned impeachment, but I think that the truth with that is that 
first and foremost, impeachment is a it's a political act. It's not necessarily like, oh, so and so committed impeachable uh, offenses, therefore they're going to get kicked out. No, I mean, it really depends on who's in Congress. So, you know, the Congress as we currently have it isn't going to make it. That's just not going to happen. And honestly, even if even if Democrats retook both chambers of Congress this fall, I honestly can't picture him being removed from office. But putting them in power would restore some of the checks and balances that we so desperately need to uh, get things back on track or at least slow down the uh, slow down the rot, if that's optimistic. I don't think that is. But, you know, <laughs> um, I, I I really appreciate you laying out like all these concrete reasons to be optimistic or if not optimistic, then at least have some hope in these very um, reasonable, possible actions and not just possible actions, but but you're right, like things that are currently happening. They don't, you don't have to hope they're happening. They are happening. These women inter- being interested in running for office. That is happening. That's not something to be hopeful about. It's happening. Um, the checks and balances being something that we can probably continue to count on. They They still exist. They're still there. And we can build on that. Right. Mm-hmm. I also think, though, there is an existential quality to this question. And one of the reasons I wanted to talk to you is I know that you, like me, you know, struggle with personal despair. You know, oh, the yeah. feelings of hopelessness that that maybe are more chemical <laughs> uh-huh. than political, but they can get fused together. Right. Yeah. And also because you you face a bunch of challenges that like your average person on the street doesn't. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And these things can feel intensely personal for different reasons. Right. Sure. So do you want to talk a little bit about that? Because I know you manage that in some really, you know, deliberate, intentional, proactive ways. Yeah. So basically, when it comes when it comes to my mental health, um, you know, with without without any any help, any treatment or anything, um, I'm kind of a human disaster uh, <laughs> when it comes to trying to keep from catast- catastrophizing and, you know, like ev- have everything uh, seem like it's falling apart. But really, one thing I found, especially over the past year and a half or so, has really been this uh these these approaches that have uh i found something that worked for me in addition to um medication for anxiety and depression that's something that i've been on for a long time and that's that's a part of my routine but there's also uh therapy i've been doing this talk therapy through this it's an app which is really interesting so it's kind of like text message therapy it's really really weird but really cool um but and it works for me in addition to seeing uh, a psychiatrist in person. Uh, So I've got that. But also one of the strategies that I've tried to work through is, like I was saying earlier about pessimism not being a very good motivator, is if you can find one little thing every day to feel optimistic about or thankful about or grateful for, you know, you can, you can, uh, you know, it kind of helps your brain snap out of that uh, that pessimistic mindset that's so easy to get stuck in and for a moment see something that's a little brighter and kind of, you know, motivate you to do something that's a little more positive for yourself and for everyone and everything around you. So it's it's a it's a whole strategy for myself that maybe what works for me won't work for you, but, you know, there's no shame in trying a whole lot of things. I mean, just the other day I bought two more 
of these like self help books. <laughs> uh, one's called Unfuck. Uh, one, one's called Unfuck Your Brain. And I was like, that sounds about right. Uh, <laughs> so, so uh, you know, it's I'm always trying to figure out new and better ways to cope with things. But you know, part of part of it definitely is reminding myself of the the positive political aspects of things out there. You know, all of those other those other things, the, the, the stuff about renewable energy, that's like, just knowing that, that's helpful. Right. <laughs> you know, so that that way, when I read an art- article about like rolling back some, you know, uh, not poisoning our water or something like that, I can go, okay, but that's, you know, it's like, that's bad. But here are these other good things that are happening and can happen if we you know, keep working towards them. Yeah, I actually, you share your daily gratitude on Twitter. You have a long running thread on this, which I think is a public service on your part, actually. I think that's a really inspiring thing to do. Um, It reminds people to try and do it themselves. Uh, I personally have a gratitude text chain um, with a bunch of friends of mine who are uh, in the same 12-step program. And we text each other. We It's a way of remaining accountable also to remember to actually do it. Um, you know, we all text each other. Not, I'm going to be super honest. It's not every night for all of us, right? Um, but as I actually said on the show a couple weeks ago, what matters about these kinds of things is not many how, how many times you, you break off from that habit, but how many times you come back to it. So I've been on this yes. text chain, a version of this text chain for six years. Um, and I will tell you, it 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 helps save my life for sure. Um, and one of the things that's wonderful about it is sort of like, you know, what we're saying, what we're talking about here is like sometimes when the political environment can feel really personal and sometimes how we feel can, you know, kind of leach into the political environment. This gratitude text chain that I'm on, it can be, you can be grateful for anything, you know? And it's wonderful to see yeah. like the spectrum of things to be grateful for. You know, like I personally, you know, uh, last night <laughs> we're recording this on Mondays. Um, so, uh, last night I was grateful for the Vikings. Right. Um, but I've also been grateful for uh, my husband cuddling, you know, a little extra time with me. I've been grateful for, uh, having kind of a snow day. I've been, you know, you can, I've been grateful for women running for office. Like it can, all of those things count, right? Every single thing. Oh Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a, I mean, it's a, it's a mindset thing. It's, it's a, you know, it could be big or small. And sometimes, yeah, like for me, it's, I'm great. I'm thankful for the soup that I had, you know, <laughs> I mean, these, these are, these are things, they don't have to be profound, um, you know, and it's just, it's just one, um, you know, it's, it's, and so, yeah, I've been doing this since January 1st, 2017. Um, and it's one of the things I'm, I'm really, you know, uh, I'm really happy with how how that's worked out for me. That's one of those things that really stuck with me. And I think that that's that's the important, that's one of the important things to do here. Try a variety of things that you think might help and find something that works for you. And what works for you, like what works for someone else might not work for you. and, And that's okay. That's important to remember because it's easy to be like, well, saying I'm thankful for something every night worked for so-and-so, but it didn't work for me. Am I broken or something like that? Right. That's that's not super helpful, <laughs> you know? Like, it's important to remember. It's okay if it doesn't work. I also will venture, though, that something... Well, actually, like, there's some scientific studies that back up the idea that gratitude is a great healing emotion. 
Um, mm-hmm. So it tends to work. And I'll also point out that in some of these cases, it may not work, but um, continuing to try something, um, the discipline of coming back, like I said, you know, it's not it's not how many times you break a habit or fall out of a habit that counts. It's how many times you come back to it. And I have mm-hmm. to say that some one of the most powerful things about that gratitude text chain that I'm on is when people fall off of it and then we restart it. Like that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that gives me chills to tell you that, like, you know what? There was a time when, like, for two months, none of us did it. Whatever. Like, I don't even remember, like, what happened, like why we all kind of like stopped. But we stopped and then someone started it again. And it worked. It that's powerful. Like to be able to remake a connection um, to both myself and to my higher power through this is one of the things that can keep you going. To know that it may not work every day, but I can always come back to it. I can always come back to it. Yeah. So. Oh, absolutely. Uh, um, thank you so much. I think I think we've offered <laughs> a ton of a ton of stuff. Um, <laughs> I think that those concrete things that you said are. are Super, super important. It probably doesn't get talked about enough because we're also focused on bad news. Um, so thank you for bringing those things in. And then also, you know, Parker, I'm grateful for you and I'm grateful for your gratitude chain. And I am, I'm grateful that you came on the show today. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate it. So that's it for the show. Uh, to the super fans that are listening, and I, I guess I usually do assume if you make it to this part of the show, you're a super fan or you are doing something with your hands, maybe washing dishes and so can't fast forward. Uh, but it was a super fan who last week pointed out that after my segment with Jamil, where we talked about the importance of uh, being considerate about your language and shifting from saying things like you guys to you folks or maybe even y'all. In the ending segment, after that segment, I said, you guys, I didn't even notice. Uh, and a lot of people, I think, maybe didn't notice. I am so thankful for the person that brought that to my attention because, you know, like Ijoma was saying, we're going to get stuff wrong. We're going to keep getting stuff wrong. And what matters is keeping going and trying to do the right thing. It's not how many times you fall away from your goal. It's how many times you come back to it. That is my personal message for 2018. So I hope you come back next week. 